it probably will come as no surprise to you that I feel a little raw this morning, a little disoriented with the events of yesterday and Barry's passing. Um, it's just so sad and heartbreaking, and uh, and yet it's a real-life tragedy that in one respect, is this extreme example of what we're going to talk about for the next four months. And that's that we all have a beginning and we all have an end. And the question really is, is how do we live between that beginning and that end? How do we live a life of faith and how do we live that every day? Is that possible? How do we, in a sense, move from Sunday to every day? And not just have an experience that we go through maybe once a week, but it really becomes part of core of who we are. Our faith in God, our faith in Jesus. How do we live a life between the beginning and the end? <clears throat> it does remind me of a song <clears throat> excuse me, called The Dash by Scotty McCreary. And I think I'm breaking a record for quoting a country song two weeks in a row. But it is a good song. Um, Now, I don't really... It's not me that likes country music in our family, just to make that clear. Uh, It's usually Tina and the kids, and so I have to endure it. uh, But yet, sometimes it's really good. Like this song. Excuse me. He writes... Actually, he probably didn't write it. He just sings it. That's how it is. Um, Whole town showed up. Gymnasium filled, floor was wet, from all the tears spilled. And the preacher man said, that's actually how you know it's a country song when they refer to the pastor as preacher man. Um, And preacher man said, we're all gathered today, and I'll never forget what he had to say. It's always too soon. It's always too fast. There'll never come a day that you don't want them back. It ain't about the numbers chiseled in concrete. It's how they live their lives in the dash between. In the dash between. And then the bridge layer goes, their first breath and their last marks all the memories of the past. That little black line defines a legacy. What we're talking about here is a legacy of faith. A legacy of living out our faith in the day-to-day realities. And the fact is that most of our lives are rather unspectacular. In fact, probably most of our lives are filled with pretty boring routines. We go to work or school every day. We meal prep. We eat the meals. We do laundry. We do yard work. We pay bills, we do taxes, we change tires, we go to the grocery store so that we can meal prep and eat and repeat. Not really Instagram-worthy stuff. Unless you're one of those people who likes to take pictures of your meal and post it for everyone to see and arouse jealousy among your friends of how well you are eating. But how do we live a life of faith every day? even on the really hard days and the hard things. See, to help us discover an everyday faith, 
we're going to study the life of David. And my role today is just simply to introduce this series, and I hope that you'll just be walking with us throughout these next few months and through the summer as we discover what it means to live uh, everyday faith. Now, an introduction to the life of David. I mean, most people know uh, about King David. There's more written and known about King David than uh, any other biblical character. Even if you maybe didn't grow up in church or you didn't go to Sunday school, you still know maybe from some pop culture or uh, artists or whatever, you know about this person, David. But David is written about more than Abraham and more than Jacob and more than Joseph. His narrative in the scriptures is extensive. And his story is recorded in First and Second Samuel and then into the first two chapters of First Kings. And then if you go to First Chronicles, there's a lot of parallel stories between these two. But we're going to spend our time studying his life from First and Second Samuel. And the genre there, the style of the writing, is narrative, in that it records historical events. It tells a story about real people, about real events at a time in history. And in this case, it was about the 11th century before Christ. And so just a quick historical background. Israel had been ruled uh, by judges Uh, God had established his law, and then the judges were put in place to uh, ensure that people followed the law. And uh, if you read through Judges, there's this continuing cycle that this is the law, but the people did whatever was right in their own eyes, and they suffered judgment, and then they did, you know, then they got right with God, and then they got away from doing what God wanted. And there's this sort of never-ending cycle of um, following God with all their hearts and then doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And uh, in chapter 8 of the passage that was, uh, that was read for us, or sorry, in 1 Samuel, um, and 1 Samuel is just written not because Samuel wrote it, but because Samuel is one of the primary characters um, leading up to, to David, of course. And uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. So he was doing a succession plan for his own leadership. And he goes in to say, the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons, listen to this, did not follow his ways. You see, Samuel was righteous, and he honored God in all that he did, but his sons did not follow his ways. In fact, they turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. In other words, they were corrupt judges. They ruled in favor of whoever had the most money, whoever would pay them off. And so what does this do? It obviously is a problem. And so all the elders of Israel in verse 4, chapter 8, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Samuel, you're old. Sure, he was like, well, thank you very much. And your sons do not follow your ways. Thank you for the reminder. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have it. All the other countries have a king. We, we want a king too. Samuel, give us a king. We want to be ruled by a king. 
And Samuel says, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And he warns them, you know, this king, he's going to reign over you and he's going to claim you as his own rights. And in the end, Samuel goes and talks to God and God says, listen, they're not upset with you. They're really upset with me, but if they want a king, give them a king. And so um, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. Saul's story takes place kind of in 1 Kings 8, 9, 10. It overlaps, of course, with David's story. But then in the passage that was read for us, and I'm not going to unpack this 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 morning. I'm just using this to kind of introduce uh, the story of Jacob. Sorry, the story of David. And uh, um, basically what happens is Samuel gives Saul some very explicit instructions on how to obey God. And Saul doesn't do that. And uh, he goes ahead, he gets impatient, and so even though Samuel is the one who should bring uh, the offering before the Lord, Saul says, no, I got to do it because um, our army's in trouble and we need to have the help of God here. And so he was feeling the pressure, and under pressure sometimes you do silly things, and so he doesn't really think about it. Then, of course, Samuel shows up on the scenes, and he's like, what have you done? Well, Saul immediately goes into self-justification mode and says, when I saw that the men were scattering, and they did not come at the set, and you did not come at the set time. I love how we blame Samuel for not showing up on time. And then the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, well, now the Philistines will come down against us or against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. To which Samuel makes it very clear that this was a very foolish thing to do. And he says, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You were explicitly commanded to do this. You chose not to do it, And so there's consequences. And he says, had you kept it, had you kept the command, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But because you didn't keep it, he says, now your kingdom must end. And for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And the man here that Samuel refers to as a man after God's heart is none other than David. Now, if I were to ask you, tell me something that you know about the life of David, I suspect we would very quickly come up with two events. You want to make this interactive? What's like the high point of David's life? This is interactive. I heard it, I think. Goliath, right? He, he's, he's the giant killer. He, he, he takes out this nine-foot-tall giant that was just threatening the armies of the Lord. And so he steps into that, and we'll come to that in a few weeks. So there's this victory and this triumph, but it, there's also a very tragic event in his life. Do you remember that one? I can't hear you because you're muffled behind a mask or something. Bathsheba, okay? The woman, he sees, the lust of his eyes gets the better of him. 
He makes plans. He commits adultery with her. She conceives. So we know exactly what they did. And, uh, and then he's got to cover his tracks. And he eventually gets, sets it up so that her husband is murdered in battle. This deep sin. And so you've got this high point and this extreme low point and probably everything in between, and yet he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. How can that be? And I want to suggest to you this, that because even on his darkest days, he still pursued God. He still pursued a relationship with him. And as soon as he messed up, he quickly assumed a posture of repentance. And when he sinned, he turned back to God. And we see this, his own life is played out before us. His own reflections of his relationship with God are are recorded for us in the Psalms. And he has written almost half of the 150 Psalms. And probably most noteworthy is Psalm 51, which, of course, he writes immediately after. Sorry, I I think I had my page marked before. But Psalm 51 if you haven't read it for a while, this is him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Listen to these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. He owned it. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed. That's how he felt the weight of his sin. You've crushed me. But let those bones rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And the psalm continues. So he writes this great psalm of repentance. He also wrote many psalms of lament where he himself would acknowledge that he was experiencing deep times of suffering and anguish and, 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 and his own raw emotions would just be spilled out on paper. And yet, in all of those songs of lament, most of them would start with, with this anguish and this suffering and they would end in praise. And it, oftentimes he would just just feel like, God, you're so far from me, and how long will you be far from me? How long will you forget me? And then at the very end, those psalms always ended, and yet I will praise you, and yet I will praise you. So he's making this commitment that even in the darkest days, he is going to praise God. And so he's a writer of the psalms, and he was also a musician, 
both tied to the Psalms, but we'll see how he actually served in Saul's court by whenever Saul was dealing with a little bit of anxiety and some stress himself, David came along and played his harp and made music, and it soothed Saul's spirit when he played this music. But he was a writer of these psalms, and he took music, and these psalms are hymns to be sung. Many psalms probably that you've even memorized, you may not have even put this connection together necessarily, but they're psalms, and we know them perhaps as a, as a praise course that we sang a long time ago. You know, as the deer pants for the water comes to mind. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, he writes, So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you dying cast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And so as you read the Psalms, as you understand them to be songs and hymns of praise, you get a glimpse into his heart's desire to be a man after God's own hearts. He was also a military leader. He was strategic. He was a genius. And, And so often his life, the life of David, is kind of mined for principles of leadership. You know, do these three things. Be like David, and you'll be a good leader. I'm not going to say that there won't be some of that in this series, because I think there are these kind of principles that we can see. But at the end of the day, we want to just look at who was he as a person, and how did he live out his faith every day, even as he gave military leadership, and even as he served as the great king of Israel, probably the greatest king of Israel. And so, the story of David starts with him being a shepherd boy. He's really launched onto the scene in some ways with his defeat of Goliath. Now, there's one more notable thing to say about David, and that is that the lineage of Jesus himself traces back to David. And Matthew opens his gospel with this verse, right in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Jesus, the son of David, was a reference. Jesus was often called that, and it was a messianic title. And whenever people called him that, they meant that he was the long-awaited deliverer, the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. And David was all, sorry, Jesus was also born in David's city, which was Bethlehem. And David, as we'll discover at some point in this series, was promised, excuse me, that one of his offspring would ultimately rule and reign forever. And this, of course, is Jesus. And so, by looking at the life of Jesus, it points us to, sorry, by looking at the life of David, it points us to Jesus. And what we see in the life of David is a man who loved God and followed him. The desire of his heart was to honor him. But the reality is that he was also human, very human. 
And as a human being, he was capable of making poor and tragic decisions. Just like me. And probably like you as well. Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72, we read this. He chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes and the lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. He cared for them with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. Or as the NIV translates that last, that last verse, and David shepherd him, shepherded them with integrity of heart. And so we have David, this man of integrity, this man who had a heart after God. And Eugene Peterson, I think, sums it up so well in a book called Leap Over a Wall. And you're probably going to hear us refer to this book many times over these next few weeks because we're actually kind of following the outline from this particular book as it traces through First and Second Samuel. But this is what Eugene Peterson writes. He says, from a purely historical point of view, he, that's David, of course, was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. <laughs> kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And then he says, but David's important, importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but is in his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. And truly our hope and our prayer that is as we study the life of David, we won't just get to know David a little bit better, but more importantly, we'll actually learn more about God. I mean, how did David walk with God will reveal to us how God walks with us. And what is it about his life that made him a man after God's own heart? And we're going to then see God's heart revealed in this journey. And how did David pursue his faith every day? And in learning about God and how David lived out his faith every day, we will discover more about ourselves and how God calls us to walk with him and to serve him. See, each of us are faced with three big questions in life. Who is God? You need to settle that. Then who am I? And then ultimately, what does God desire to do through me? Many people think that because their lives are rather mundane, they aren't all that significant, or maybe they even spend their lives chasing the spectacular, and, and, and they miss out then on some of the details of their own life that end up shaping and forming our character. But the reality is, is that we all have a story to tell. Like David's story, ours has a beginning and an end. It has a plot and a storyline. And while, like David, we are the main character in our own story, our stories, in fact, also have many other characters. And it's our interaction with and our relationship with these other characters that over time form us and shape us. I mean, when you think about our life in general, they, they follow a fairly general routine. There's nothing necessarily all that spectacular about it. I mean, we all have a, a birth story. We love reminding our kids about those days and 
what happened and the events of that so that they can kind of own, um, you know, the, 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 the just, well, I don't need to go into all the details on that, but you know, right? Like just the, the idea that, that we have a birth story. And, and, and then we have other significant events, right? Like kindergarten graduation. I mean, that's a thing now. Or grade nine graduation. I used to always think that just graduating from grade 12 was going to be a major milestone event. And then maybe after grade 12, you go on to university or college or trade school or something and you graduate and, and you move on. And maybe God brings a life partner into your life and you get married and then you have your own kids and you get into this place where some of us are at sort of this awkward sandwich generation where you have kids that you're taking care of and you have elderly parents that you're caring for. And then someday you yourselves become those elderly parents. But the reality is that our lives are not just a sequence of events on a timeline. The fact is that God is at work in and throughout our lives. And he continues to be between those major events. Now, it's interesting to note that in David's story, there isn't a single miracle. Nothing spectacular. Unless you think, you know, you consider the fact that him taking out Goliath with a slingshot and a stone. It's pretty miraculous. God stepped in for sure. But other than that, it's pretty routine. It's kind of just real life. And again, Peterson writes, there's never any question but that God is at the center of the plot and always present, although usually silent and hidden in the details. But this is a story that never bypasses the ordinary, the everyday. David's humanity provides material that's worked on from the inside, quietly, insistently, hiddenly. The David story is a plunge into the earthiness of our humanity. Love that. The David story is a plunge into the earthiness of our humanity. And so we're going to explore themes over these next few weeks like work and friendship and beauty and generosity and grief and love and sin and suffering and death and many more. And as we do, the Holy Spirit will work on us from the inside. So my question to you is simply this. Have you ever considered your own story? Have you ever thought of the ways that God has been at work in your life? Maybe even in ways that you had never acknowledged before in your own life. And if there's a takeaway today, it's simply this. I'd encourage you, because we all have a story, to find a way to record it, to maybe write it down to record that spiritual journey and our journey of formation is often aided by reflecting on our story because we all have our own narratives. And again, it's not just a timeline or a sequence of events. It's understanding how God is threading his work in our lives throughout all of those events. <clears throat> it's not just a linear line usually from A to B. And God uses all of those events to shape us and form us. And sometimes those events are painful and traumatic experiences. 
For many, our family of origin, our relationship with our parents, has a significant impact on our story and on our formation. I vividly remember the most impactful class that I took in seminary. And if Dr. Page was here, and he's probably watching online, I'm sorry, but it wasn't Greek exegesis of Philippians, and it wasn't the life of the Apostle Paul. It was personal development and Christian ministry, where for the first time at the age of 23, 24, I actually had to think about why was I the way that I was? Why did I react the way that I reacted? How had I, in my early years, been formed? And for me, at that time, the big thing that I had to face was perfectionism. Spent so much of my life striving, striving to achieve, striving to be perfect, striving to make things right. There's lots of reasons for that. And I discovered that. But you know what I discovered in that? was grace. Because I had actually been raised in a fairly legalistic home and church, and we had to be perfect. And if you don't live up to perfection, you always deal with guilt and shame and never measuring up. And suddenly, I'm confronted with grace. Even though I had given my life to Jesus, even though I had been baptized as a teenager, even though I had given my, like really committed my life to Jesus and following him wherever he asked me to go. But it wasn't until I was in this class and starting to peel back some of the layers that I discovered that part about me. Pete Scazzaro in his book and in his work, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, where his thesis is, is that it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. He has a principle there. He talks about going back in order to go forward. And he suggests doing something like a family genogram where you basically map your family and go back some generations and start asking the questions about what was happening in their family. And you start to trace lines that are passed from one generation to another. And all of a sudden, it starts to make sense maybe in your own life. Because as you reflect on your past, it starts to reveal a lot about how we were formed. And for all of us, faith is a lifelong journey during which we're shaped and we're formed. And so to answer some of those big questions, who is God, who am I, and what is God desiring to do through me, it's super helpful to explore our stories. Because as we learn more about ourself, we actually learn more about God. And as we learn more about God, we actually learn more about ourselves. John Calvin, in fact, in his institutes, which are like 400 years ago now that he wrote them, almost 400 years ago, he begins with the assertion that the Christian life fundamentally consists of two things, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And as I look at my life, that has been my experience. From that class in seminary that I just shared about to a leadership program that I went uh, through in kind of early 2003, 2004, my own experience with burnout in 2007, <clears throat> when, when all of your world just sort of crashes down around you and you have to kind of go, what happened? And what led to this? And you start putting these pieces together. A few years ago, our staff went together <clears throat> on a journey um, through uh, some material by Vantage Point 3, and it's just called The Journey. 
And it's really answering those questions. Who is God? Who am I? And how is God um, doing a work in my life? And there's a whole section in there, several chapters, so there's way too much to kind of cover here. But it talks about when we view our lives as a narrative, there's three benefits. Number one, it invites us to learn from our lives. So when we really look back and consider, what was it that was happening there? How, why am I the way that I am? It helps us make sense of our lives, secondly, because now it's sort of like, oh, okay, I get it now. And thirdly, it offers us choice or possibility for change. Because once we understand our past, in order to go forward, we've got to go back first. And so deep reflection on the events and experiences of our lives, it reveals to us the work that the Spirit of God has done in our lives. And I believe when we do that, it will also help with a better understanding of what God may be up to in our lives. Now, if you have an interest in exploring that further, just maybe send me an email and I'll give you some resources and we can talk about that a little bit more and we'll figure out how we can can lay all this out. But my point is simply this today. We all have a story to tell. And it's not just a timeline of events. It's those incidents that have happened in our lives that have shaped us and formed us could be a key relationship, a circumstance that had some significant influence in shaping your life. That incident might have been positive or it might have been negative. And each of these incidents in our lives, as we think about them, starts to tell our story more fully. David's is recorded for us in all of its rawness and all of its honesty. I love how the Bible writers, they, they never sugarcoat sort of the heroes of the Bible and they show them in, in all of their, their, their um, rawness and their vulnerabilities. But as we're introduced to the story of David, maybe for the first time for some of you, or maybe you're being reintroduced to him, I truly believe that we will learn more about God. And that's why we're studying this. Not to learn about David and principles for parenting, but that we would learn more about who God is and how He is at work in our families and in our relationships. We're going to see where God is at work, and we're going to discover all of what God wants to do in us and through us, because we can be sure of this, that God is at work in each of our lives, bringing to completion exactly what He started, whether that was 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago, or 60 years ago, you get the point. And I want to say to you that it's a story worth telling. So think it through. Write it down. Record it. Maybe it becomes part of that legacy that you leave to your own kids. Because as you reveal more of how God is at work in your life, I believe that it'll help and inform your kids as well, and how God is at work in their lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the story of David. We thank you that we can study your word and we can discover who you are, who David is. Maybe ask that question ourselves, then who am I? And how are you at work in our lives? And Father, I pray that if there are those here this morning that really would 
want to dive deeper into that. I pray that they would have the courage to explore what it is that you have done and are doing in our lives so that we can look forward to the future and maybe some change that you want to bring about in our lives. As we discover more about you, as we discover more about ourselves, this knowledge of God and this knowledge of self. And help us, Father, so that as we discover more about ourselves, ultimately our attention is drawn to you. Because you're good and you are awesome. And we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.